0: Greetings. My name is Huda Zagbi. I'm a professor at Baylor College of Medicine, and I'm an investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and director of the Jan and Dan Duncan Neurological Research Institute at Texas Children's Hospital. Today, I'd like to share with you a story that comes in three parts. It starts with patients. And from patients, it gets into genes that will teach us something about childhood developmental disorders. And from that, we're gonna move into part 2 and part 3, discussing the mechanism of the disease and what might we do as a therapeutic intervention. So, let's start with the problem. One of the most common childhood developmental disorders are autism spectrum disorders. These are disorders that affect about 1 in 50 children these days. So, it's really quite prevalent. And these diseases are typically characterized by impairment in social behavior and communication, and sometimes restricted and repetitive movement that these children do. In addition, they may have different... uh, difficult problems with communication. Usually, they have language uh, issues. And typically, it presents before 3 years of age. The problem with autism, if you just look at all children with autism, it's probably very heterogeneous. And to get to understand all the causes of autism at once and mechanistically is really tough. One thing we've learned is that autism is not isolated. It often can occur with other symptoms. These may be hyperactivity, intellectual disability, anxiety, sometimes epilepsy, sometimes mood disorders. And uh, behavioral issues and OCD. So, our approach to really gain insight into the, this very common but heterogeneous problem of autism is to study a distinct form of autism. It is what we call syndromic autism. What that means, means all the patients look very similar. What I just shared with you that patients may present with autism, but any one of behavioral and neurological problems. But in syndromic ad- autism, we call it a syndrome where many features consistently happen in the same in the patient with these disorders. So, this is what we've decided to do to understand this class of disorders. And for that, we turn to... we're gonna discuss a disease called Rett syndrome. Rett syndrome wa- is named after the pediatrician shown here in this picture, Andreas Rett. He was the first person to. St- girls with this disorder. And he was so impressed when he saw two girls that looked very similar... again, this is the definition of a syndrome, when people look very similar, and they have many features that look alike... they looked very similar, and wrote about it in a German article. But, unfortunately, this was published in 1966 in German and stayed as such. No one... Uh, not many people have read it, and no one really heard much about it outside of Vienna, where he was. But in 1983, another neurologist, he's a Swedish neurologist, his name Bengt Hagberg, with his colleagues realized that they see a unique syndrome that they said this is a syndrome of autism, because of the features I described to you, dementia, that means there's regression, losing the skills that you've already learned, as well as balance disorders, that's the word ataxia, means balance and uncoordination, balance problems. And loss of purposeful hand use. That means, usually, if a child can use their hand, they no longer can use their hands. And this was all girls. And they reported on 35 cases. And they decided to call the syndrome Ret because as they went around in Europe discussing these patients, they realized that Andreas Rett has already described the syndrome in 1966. So, this is the history of the syndrome. And the paper was published in English for the first time in 1983. And it happens to be the same month that paper was published that I met my first patient with this disorder. Shown in this picture is Ashley. And what's striking about Rett syndrome is that it strikes after birth, and typically after the first year of life. In fact, Ashley was healthy up to two years of age. She was able to say a few words. She was able to socialize. She was able to use her hand. She always ran to the door to greet her father when he came from work. But after her second birthday, all of that stopped. And her parents noticed that she's no longer communicating. She used to rhyme some songs with them. She no longer did that. Lost all her language skills. And instead of using her hands, instead, she started wringing her hands. And you see her in this picture holding her hands together. And she had the withdrawn social behavior, as typical of children with autism, and then she had anxiety, and with time, coordination problems, and seizures, and tremors, which is shaking, and a lot of autonomic problems, such as uh, bowel problems, constipation, and breathing dif- problems, breathe too fast or breathe too slow. So, that was Ashley. And when I saw her, I was really struck the fact that she was normal for a while. But then she lost all these skills and had the features with autism, plus these other features that constitute this syndrome. And it happened that I saw another girl like her a week later, and I really became fascinated with this disorder, and I wanted to figure out what causes it. Now, in this video, I just want to show you Rett syndrome in action. Again, you'll see in this girl, she's wringing her hands, and you're going to see her rocking and you notice there's not as much social interaction or social behavior. And then when she stands up to walk, she sees the floor. She just cannot plan her movement. She has difficulty planning the movement. And when she starts moving, she's unsteady and she's rigid and she falls backwards. That's what most Rett syndrome girls do. And with time, I was able to see quite a few of these girls. And what that we quickly learned, both from the report by Hanberg as well as from the patients we've seen, is that Rett syndrome is a sporadic disorder. What this means it means in every family, there is just one person affected with this disease. You'll see, in each case, it's a girl. Circles, in this diagram, are females, and squares are males. And you'll notice most of the families have healthy children, but typically just one child who's affected with Rett syndrome. And this was the late 1980s, so it was really hard to find a gene for a disease that doesn't run in a family, but rather is what we call sporadic, it means just one, which is caused probably by a new mutation. But we've decided that, because it's in females, most likely we can narrow it, perhaps, to the X chromosome, and I'll explain to you in a minute why, and we decided that we're going to try to find the gene for Rett syndrome. And what helped us through the years was there were a couple of families like this one family, where you see a healthy mother who has two daughters, and those two daughters had Rett Syndrome. Those are very, very rare families. Less than 1% of Rett Syndrome patients are familiar. The question is, how do you get Rett Syndrome in two girls when both their mother and father are healthy? And in this case, you see, actually, the two girls had different fathers and what we discover the way you get that is because this gene is likely on the x chromosome every female has two x chromosomes one from the mother depicted here in blue and one from th- uh, sorry in pink from the mother and one from the father depicted in blue and in every female half of the cells express the x chromosome all the genes from the x chromosome from the father and In the other half of cells, all the genes uh, that are expressed from the X chromosome from the mother. So if you look at the two girls, they're mixed. It's about 50 50. Half of the cells have the maternal X chromosome active, and the other half is the paternal X chromosome active. And the reason in every cell only one X active, because females have two Xs, whereas males have one X. So to have the dosage equal between males and females, this is why usually there is X inactivation. And what we notice is that in these females, it's 50-50, but in their mother, who happens to carry the mutation that's passed on to her two daughters on her chromosome, she happened to be lucky and only her normal X chromosome that she got from her father is expressed in most of the cells. So, you see, most of her cells are blue, expressing the healthy X chromosome, and only maybe a couple of cells may express the mutant uh, X, and that's why she's healthy. And probably, in her oocytes, in the ovary, there must have been a few cells that expressed the mutant X, and she passed on to her daughter, and that's why she had two affected daughters. Why I share with you the story? Because this, to me, was really the real evidence the threat may be on the X chromosome. So, having narrowed it on the X chromosome, then we spent about 10 years marching down the X chromosome, checking gene by gene, and narrowing down the areas that we think the gene maps, using these very few rare families. In fact, this was a total of four families, until eventually, in 1999, we found the Rett syndrome gene. And we found that the gene that causes Rett syndrome is called methyl CpG binding protein 2 or we call it MeCP2 for short. It lies on the t- almost at the tip of the long arm of the X chromosome. You see here the X chromosome and the little red band is where this uh, gene lies. And to our surprise, we found that most girls with that syndrome have mutations in this gene and it's always only in the girls, it's not inherited. So what does methyl CpG binding protein two means? We discovered the gene as the cause of Rett syndrome, but the protein methyl CpG binding protein two was discovered many years before that, not as a, a protein associated with disease, but really as a protein that binds methylated cytosines. You know that we, the our DNA is more is made from four bases. And one of these bases is cytosine. And cytosine can be methylated, as shown here, with the CH3, that's a methylated uh, cytosine. And what this protein does, and this is how the lab of Adrian Bird discovered it, they discovered it based on the fact this protein can bind methylated cytosines. Hence, it's name, methyl-CPG binding protein 2. What does CPG mean? It means it's a cytosine, followed by a guanine, and that cytosine is methylated. So, now we have a gene that causes red syndrome, and we know that the protein binds methylated cytosine. This is an interesting DNA mark. This is what we call an epigenetic mark. That is a mark that you change the DNA, you change the function of a gene without changing the DNA sequence, by basically adding a methyl group to the cytosine, now, you can affect, perhaps, how a gene is being expressed, because you methylated that cytosine. However, the DNA sequence, if you were to sequences, is unaltered. So, now I'm going to walk you through what we learned after the discovery of the gene. The first thing we learned is that Rett syndrome, typically, like I've showed you, have random X inactivation. You'll see on this brain cartoon that about half of the cells have a healthy amount of the gene, so these are the dark filled circles, but the other half lack a functional gene. And therefore, when you have a female with random X inactivation, you're gonna have the classic picture of red syndrome that I shared with you and that you've seen in the video, as well as described for Ashley. However, what we also learned is that males, although we never really... we didn't see much males with these disorders, once we found the gene, we became... Uh, aware that there are certain males that have mutation in this gene. Now, if you recall, I mentioned males had a single X chromosome. So, if a male has a single X chromosome and it has a mutation, that means every brain cell is affected. When every brain cell is affected, the disease is far more severe. We these males will present with what we call encephalopathy, it means there is pathology of the whole brain. It's when they're born. They're hypotonic, they can't do much for themselves, and they're really weak. That's when the gene is totally missing. They also have motor problems, seizures, and a lot of breathing difficulties and autonomic problems with their gut. And sadly, these boys that totally lack a functional copy of the gene die prematurely, typically by two years of age. But the beauty of having the gene is now you can really screen every child who may come and have features that look like red, but not quite classic red, And this is what we learned. We learned that there are mutations that are milder. They're not quite as severe at totally eliminating the protein. And we found that some of these mutations that leave a little bit of a functional protein can cause, typically, learning disabilities. And then you see a bunch of symptoms. That are in different colors. And the reason these symptoms are in different colors is because they're not all in the same patient. One patient may have learning disability and autism. Another may have learning disability and anxiety and OCD. A third one may have hyperactivity and tremors and learning difficulty. Others have presented with bipolar disease as well as early onset schizophrenia. So now you've got a range from learning disabilities all the way to psychiatric diseases all do mutations in the same gene, but it all depends on the severity of the mutation. If it's very severe in a male, it's gonna be lethal. If it's severe in a female, it's gonna give us threat. But if it's milder, you start getting these partial features, such as autism and intellectual disability, and psychiatric symptoms. And I thought I'll give you an example here of a family I have followed where you see there are multiple males. You see these filled squares. These are multiple males that are affected. And typically, the story of each of these males is the same. The children typically present with social behavioral problems and learning difficulties and tremor. When they become teenagers, as we know from the uncles, the the two children in the third generation, they're still young, so they still have just behavioral problems and learning difficulties. But their maternal uncles, they have, behavior... they had behavioral issues as teenagers, but then when they became forty and fifty years old, they developed motor problems, eventually became wheelchair bound, and eventually passed away. So even a mild mutation in a male that may present with behavior problem, unfortunately, after th- three or four decades can cause lethality. And the females that have the little dot that tells us that these females are carriers. And because this mutation is very, very mild, as you can tell from the young boys who just have behavioral problems, the females don't really have symptoms because they only have it in 50% of their cells. So, this now gives you an idea of how broad one gene can affect a lot of behavioral phenotypes, psychiatric phenotypes, just from one gene, all has to do with its mutations getting back to the protein... I told you this is a protein that binds methylated DNA. And it has different domains. By that, I mean parts of that protein perform different functions. The green part you see on the slides, that's the part that binds methylated DNA. And the orange part, that's the part that binds additional proteins that it brings to that methylated DNA, and eventually those will dampen gene expression or alter gene expression. On the lower slide, you'll see additional domains that are conserved among different species. And the two purple regions are regions that are called AT-hook. And I'll come back to those in the second part. But those are regions that, in addition to the methylated portion of DNA that the green region bind, those are also bi- they can bind DNA and change, if you will, the conformation of DNA and the proteins that the DNA wraps around. So why do I share this with you? I share with, this with you to tell you what we've learned from studying all the different parts of this protein is that the human disease, the severity of the human disease, correlates also where with the mutation is. So, mutations in the part that bind methylated DNA are very severe. Eventually, those really kill the function of the protein. If the protein cannot come to the DNA and cannot bind the DNA, then it cannot do any of its other function. Whereas mutations in the other portion, the distal portion, that's shown here in green, those cause milder symptoms. So, we've learned that from studying thousands of patients. And I should have mentioned that... We now know that over 95% of Rett syndrome cases that are classical, that have all the features, have mutations in this gene. So, having now identified the gene to really begin to understand the disease, we created... we and others created mouse models. And I'm gonna show you now a video of one of these mice. And you can see, first, a healthy mouse. Then you're going to see the rat mouse, and the rat mouse has the same kind of uh, activity that mimics the hand wringing, whereas where, you're going to see the mice uh, rubbing their forepaws. So, this is a normal mouse. It's pretty strong, trying to climb out of the examiner's hand. And now you'll see the rat mouse rubbing its forepaws. And when it holds still for a minute, you're going to notice how tremulous it is, which is something very typical of rat syndrome. So, we have... we knew that if you take away this gene in the mice, you reproduce all the features of Rett syndrome. One thing we were interested in is to know, if we add the gene back, can we rescue the symptoms and what will happen? And the first thing we did is we added a copy of the gene in healthy mouse. So, in this case, the mouse ended up with two copies, one its own gene and the one the copy we added. And to our surprise, we find that these mice are also abnormal. We quickly learned that having an extra copy of this gene is just as bad as having no copy. Here you'll see the mice also rubbing their forepaw, having this what we call stereotyped activity, and they're disheveled, and you're gonna see the mouse then go into a seizure and fall. So, unfortunately, these mice had a lot of neurological problems, and they died by one year of age. And that clued us that there must be patient then, that may have an extra copy of this gene. And indeed, this proved to be the case. This is a portion of the X chromosome. And every red bar you see here is a bar representing a duplicated region in a patient. And you'll see that these the duplication begin and end at different sites. So, you'll see here, for example, this... one of them uh, begins here and ends totally at a a different site. And the only region that's really shared with, with... between all the patients, that the only region is the one in these... between these dotted black lines, that's a region of overlap, and that only spans the MACP2 gene and another gene called IRAC1. So, so, quickly, patients with duplications were identified, and Dr. Vanesh in Belgium was the first one, to Hilde Vanesh, to report on that, and then others from our institutions and others reported on them. And all these males with the duplications had motor problems, low tone, They had features that looked like red. They had cognitive problems, seizures, respiratory infections. And again, sadly, these boys died, but typically by the third decade. So, we knew now that having an extra dose of this gene, both in mice and humans, causes disease. And in this uh, series of photos, you'll see my first patient with this disorder, Brody, where in his big picture on the right, you see him sharp. He used to say a few words, play video games. Here is... he is about 10 years old, and then, as you move to the left, you'll notice that he became wheelchair-bound and eventually, sadly, bedridden, where his parents are... by his bedside. And sadly, like all... many of these children, he died, you know, uh, before he was 20. He actually died this past year. So, it's really a devastating disease. Now, this is the males. How about the females? It turns out... The mothers of these children, most of them, are healthy. They may show some symptoms of anxiety and OCD, but most of them are healthy. And it turns out they're healthy because they have favorable X inactivation, which means only the X without the duplication is the X that's expressed in every cell of theirs. But sometimes, some of these uh, females might show depression, sometimes they might show broad autism phenotype. And sometimes, if they don't have the favorable X inactivation favorably... favoring the wild type X chromosome, the healthy X chromosome, they may have RET like symptoms. So, uh, we see that rarely. Most of the females typically are healthy, but sadly, they have boys with this disorder. So, if you were to compare now the mouse models, the ones that lack MACP2, which is a model of the male, if you will, uh, without Rett syndrome, to those that have a duplication, you'll notice that there are some differences. When you lose the protein, there's learning deficits. But in the mice that have an extra copy, they seem to learn more, at least for a while. Eventually, they don't do as well, but at least for a while they do that. The patient without the protein are uh, the mice without the proteins are hypoactive. But those with an extra copy, they can be first hyperactive and then become hypoactive. And then all the other features are pretty similar. They have motor problem, anxiety, stereotype behavior, seizures, and decreased sociability. And sadly, both animal models will die. But before these animals die, we can study them. And we can try to understand why is it that when you have an extra copy, you have... Symptoms. Is it because you're disrupting the whole protein complex within which macp 2 resides? So, you're losing the function of the whole complex? Or is it the whole complex is there, but it's doing more of what it normally does? So, we began to evaluate this first at a neuronal level. In this picture, I'm showing you an example where we're looking at neurons from the hippocampus. These are in culture and where we're staining them for excitatory synapses. These are synapses that contain... uh, these are excitatory neurons that make the neurotransmitters glutamate, and the synapses are labeled green. And what you notice in the middle is what a healthy neuron looks like. And every one of these green dots is a synapse. You see a very healthy, robust number of synapses. But when you look on the left, In the mice that lack the protein, you're going to see much fewer synapses. Whereas, if you look on the right, with the duplication mouse model, you see more synapses. And that could explain the early-on enhanced learning, the hyperactivity, because there is a lot more excitatory transmission, neurotransmission. So, we established, then, at this neuronal level that they go the opposite way just like the behaviors initially go the opposite way before the animals deteriorate how about at the molecular level recall i told you this protein which shown here as a green uh, box if you will rectangle bind methylated dna and i mentioned to you that it also at- uh, interact with uh, proteins that mediate silencing or ex repression, if you will, dampening of gene expression. It regulates that by sitting on the DNA and then compacting the chromatin to decrease gene expression. So, one logical thing we thought, then, we should study the gene expression from different brain regions in these mice, the ones that lack the protein and the ones that have an extra copy. And that will tell us, if they look the same, that means doubling it is disrupting these complexes and causing loss of function. If they go the opposite way, then one is a loss and the other is a gain. And in that, indeed, this is what we found. So, blue means the genes are decreased, and yellow means they are increased in this particular heat map. And what you'll see on the left, in the null, that majority of the genes from this particular brain region, the hypothalamus, went down. But those same genes... Went up in the duplication model. On the other hand, there were some genes that went up in the knockout, in the null, and those same genes went down. The majority of the genes that were altered in both models were shared and they were exactly the inverse of each other. So this was really important because this taught us two things that first, the duplication is causing disease by just doing probably what this protein normally does, just too much of it. And the other thing it sort of was intriguing, we expected, if this is a protein that lowers gene expression, that a lot more genes will actually go up when you take it away. But we found the opposite. We don't quite understand why that is. It could be secondary, or it could be because the, ge- the protein has multiple functions. And we're gonna get back to that in Part 2. But one thing I want to share with you, is among these genes that are altered inversely in both animal models, we found later on that many of them, in isolation, many of those genes that are misregulated, any one of them in isolation, if you take it down 50%, or maybe increase it by 50%, by itself, can cause non-syndromic autism or milder forms of syndromic autism. And on this table, I just put a selected list of such genes. This is not exhaustive. There's, today, probably two or three times this number. But just gives you an idea how, from the discovery of one gene, and understanding what it can do to the brain, what genes it can regulate in the brain that are now misregulated, you can begin to identify downstream uh, genes that are really important, for some of the symptoms of disease, such as autism or social behavior or cognitive function. And you can go through some of these papers to learn what each of these genes can cause, but the point is, discovery of syndromic autism really helped us understand quite a few things, some of which is new candidate genes for autism that have been discovered later. And the other thing that we've learned from the discovery of Rett syndrome, is the brain is very sensitive to macp 2 level. So, if you look on this curve, what you're going to find is the spectrum of clinical presentation based on how much of a functional protein you have and, and how many cells. So, for example, at the very extreme left, when you have zero of that protein, it's quite fatal in males. So, no, no child can live there if they have none of the protein. However, if one moves a little bit further, uh, you 'll see the females that are heterozygous; they lack the protein in fifty percent of the cells, but having it in the other fifty percent is enough to let them have the full blown red syndrome and Then we found that at least in animal study, if we now reduce the protein by fifty percent in every cell, we get all the features that we typically see in red, but much later and much milder, so having it 50% in every cell, or having it 100% of 50% of the cells, are similar, except the timing may be slightly different. And, of course, I shared with you the one family that has this one mild mutation, the in 140 v This is a very mild uh, change in the amino acid sequence, but it's enough to cause a variety. We've seen now many patients that may present with behavioral problems or psychiatric problems, such as schiz- schizophrenia and bipolar. Now, if you have 100% of the protein, the brain is healthy. But if one has a duplication, I shared with you the phenotype or the clinical picture in patients and in the mice. But what we also learned, both in mice and humans, that if you triple the protein, there's triplication, both in humans and we have a mouse that has three copies or more of the uh, gene, those are even much more severe and they die much earlier in life. So, this really told us how exquisitely sensitive the brain to the levels of this protein. And this is an opportunity. That means if we can take someone with a milder or moderate mutation and find a way to increase their MACP2 level, we're gonna help. And somebody with too much, if we can lower it, we're gonna help. And we're gonna get back to that in the third part of this talk. So, then, to summarize what we've learned today, Rett syndrome is a disorder that's progressive that happens after the first to second year of life. And uh, these girls would present with a variety of symptoms. By studying RET, we've learned about its cause, which is MeCP2, or methyl-CPG-binding protein 2. And it, we learned that different mutations in this gene can... F- Cause a variety of clinical pictures ranging from Rett syndrome all the way to psychiatric phenotypes and milder features depending on the severity of the mutation. We also learned that the brain is very sensitive to the level of this protein to function properly. And lastly, we learned that if you double this protein, one gets another progressive neurological disease due to gain in the normal function of MECP2. So it's not that the protein is losing function, it's just doing much more of what it normally does, and that's enough to cause disease. With that, I'd like to thank all the contributors to this work. Uh, uh, Many of them are now alumni. And then our collaborators, and of course the families with Rett syndrome and MACP2 duplications, and our funders. Thank you.